Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio in Gwinnett, it's time for Silver Lining in the Cloud, brought to you by Computer Design and Integration. All right. Good morning and welcome to Silver Lining in the Cloud. I'm your host, Nicole Toptosh, along with my co-host, Dominic Rainey. Good morning, Dom. How are you doing today? Nicole, I'm doing fantastic today. Hey, uh, you know what? I had a crazy thought the other day, and um, I was thinking about those machines that make fog, you know, for those rock stars, those shows, they make <laughs> fog. And uh-huh. I, was ho- I was on the Internet last night looking all over the place trying to find a machine that would make clouds. So, you know, I think our studio could use a few clouds. <laughs> what do you think? Don, you're crazy. We certainly don't need any special effects because together we are the perfect storm. We actually have a great show lined up today. Let's introduce our guest for the show. Joining us from Clara Resources is Peter Casey. From Athea Solutions, we have Brian Gluting. From Black Girls Golf, we have Tiffany McFitzgerald. And rounding out our panel is Sharon Ritchie Houghton with Legacy Nursing and Rehabilitation. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for being on the show. Peter, why don't you start us off and give me a bit of an overview of Cloud Resources and what do you do? Uh, we're a global executive search firm. Uh, we operate in four continents. Uh, I started the business back in 1984 originally in Sydney, Australia, and then set up here in Atlanta 20 years ago. Our head office is in Donegal. Uh, we specialize in IT, uh, high-level IT sourcing of senior executives. Um, so. Okay, great. Now, from your perspective, what would you say is the right way or and also the wrong way of conducting an interview? Uh, I think the preparation is key. So you have to make sure you've done your homework. So and true. you really – there's two sides to it. One is the candidates. It's amazing the number of candidates who come for an interview who actually don't do their homework. They don't know the history of the company that they're going to be interviewing for. They haven't taken the time to check out the interviewer and the background to the interviewer. Uh, it, it's amazing that, that, that that's the case. Um, from an interviewer's perspective, it's important that you know you start off and sell the company, sell the benefits of the opportunity, and give the vision of what the opportunity will mean to the to the candidate. So right. it's I think a lot of people don't do enough selling. It's interviewing is selling. You're selling yourself to the candidate. You're selling the opportunities to the candidate, and I think that um, a lot of times people just jump in and don't do that little bit of selling. Right, right. It's necessary. And along with that, there's certainly many questions to ask. As a business owner, what do you feel are the uh, questions to ask and questions not to ask? Uh, legally, there's a lot of ones that you're not allowed to ask. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite amazing. In, in Australia, you could ask somebody's inside leg measurement, you know, and get away with it. But uh, <laughs> uh, in America, you have to be very careful what you ask. Obviously, you're not allowed to ask any questions that regarding their age or their race or background. Um, what I look for, though, is has the person got passion? Have they got, you know, what, how did they get to where they got to? Uh, where do they want to get to? What is their passion in life? Um, other than, obviously, the, the technical qualification right. questions that are typically screened before I get to them. Okay, great. We've been talking with Peter Clotter. I'm sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter Casey from Clotter Resources. Mm-hmm. 
Peter, uh, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, with all of your business experience, what do you think is the, uh, you know, what are the key ingredients to a, a business relationship and partnership? It's a good question. Uh, the, the, we've got clients that we've, you, we've enjoyed relationships with for 20 years, and I think what we look for uh, is in executive search, for example, we, we like to make sure that there's, the client always gets value for money, that they always get a return on any dollars that they spend with us. And in our business, it's referrals. I mean, the reason that we've got such a broad, expansive clients is that it's all referral business. So I think if you really look after your clients, the clients will look after you. So that's uh, we have a, a policy that uh, if somebody spends uh, a dollar with us, they have to have an invoice against it. So it's a lot of executive search firms don't operate the same way. So. Well, Peter, let's tap into your global experience a little bit. Um, you're um, quite versed in uh, in the marketplace. How do you see the current economy, uh, the currency in Europe, uh, having an impact on uh, what's going on in the U.S. and, and our recovery? Well, the, US, the Europe is obviously one of our major trading partners, and if they're in trouble, then we're, it'll it'll have a domino effect onto us eventually. Uh, the euro clearly isn't working. Uh, the euro. Uh, as a concept, uh, it just cannot work because if you think of it, if Ireland um, had carried on spending like drunken sailors the way we did, <laughs> you know, uh, and if we hadn't been in the euro, the value of the punt would have dropped down. The Mercedes and the BMWs would have been twice as expensive and we'd have stopped buying them. And, of course, with the euro, we were able to keep buying. The, and the Germ Germany was the real big winner of this. Uh, they were the big winner when things were going well and they're the big winner now when things are going badly. And the, this whole idea of austerity just isn't working. And if you think about it, like 20 years ago, Japan, everybody was saying Japan was going to take over and replace America as the number one economy. And 20 years ago, Japan's GDP was $5.4 trillion. America was $7.6 trillion. Today, Japan is 5.8 trillion, uh, 5.9, and America is just under 16. And they've had zero interest rates for the last 20 years. So I think that um, they have to do something in Europe to to really sort out the economic mess that they've got themselves into. So uh, America's still number one economy. And will be for a long time, yeah. You know, <laughs> sometimes you you hear otherwise in the press, and you tend they tend to make you believe, uh, you know, that we're slipping. Uh, no, well, we own, we own the printing press. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. And the other thing about you know Japan, for example, they've got uh, you know everybody's talking about debt and our debt. I mean, our debt's sixteen trillion roughly, but Japan's debt is two hundred and twenty six percent the GDP. So their debt is two and, oh, two and a quarter times their their DB, their their national debt. You know, so we're our, we're not, we're not we're in a much better situation than most people would have you believe. So you're tied to the technology sector very closely. What do you think is the next big thing uh, in technology? The next big thing, I believe, is uh, this massive open online courses. It's going to revolutionize education. It's going to do to education what uh, iTunes did to music. And as a matter of fact, uh, Georgia Tech recently just announced that they were doing an a MBA program for $4,500 uh, dollars. You know, so mm. MOOCs, all these uh, massive open line courses are out there. Once we learn how to monetize and calibrate uh, and integrate those into uh, formalized education programs, everybody who's got a computer will be able to go online and uh, get a master's degree or bachelor's degree. Uh, and, 
academia as we know it is going to change completely and the relationship between business and academia is is going to change completely so at the moment uh, education institutions fall behind business by about seven or eight years MOOCs will make it so it's about six or seven months because you'll be able to be doing your master's degree realize that there's a very important uh, predictive analytics supply chain management course out there you want to integrate that into your master's degree. You'll go out there, do the MOOC. It'll be integrated as part of your master's degree. The next thing you know, you'll graduate and you'll have that as part of your certification. So you'll be able to be valuable to business the day you graduate rather than have to go out and be trained on it. Very good. Peter, what do you enjoy most about what you do? Um, I deal with a lot of CEOs, uh, very senior companies and getting uh, an insight for them from them on their businesses is fascinating you know so mm-hmm. our biggest client would be Tata Consulting which is an amazing company like they're 5% of the Indian GDP the Tata group you know uh, they've been going since 160 uh, 1867 and they own Jaguar Land Rover you know they're they're just a, they're, they're uh, they're an amazing company, and uh, w- w- there's a, an Irishman actually is running them now. A 38 year old Irishman runs the Tata Sons, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's an amazing company. Uh, and, w- and I deal directly with the CEO of that uh-huh. company, and a lot of the other CEOs of leading companies. So that that part right. I find fascinating. Yes, I totally understand. You talked earlier about being passionate about what you do, and it's obvious that you are passionate about what you do. Peter, tell us how can our listeners reach out to you to learn more about the many services that you offer. Um, our website, uh, uh Clara is a, it's an Irish name. Uh, I see your ring. The, <laughs> you see the, the Irish <laughs> ring? That's yeah. right, that's right. So, yes. Uh, so it's, um, uh, that obviously the website is, is uh, probably the easiest way to understand what, we're, what we do and how we do right, it. Great. Thank you very, very much, Peter. Next up on our broadcast, we have Peter Gluting with ACS Solutions. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Good. How are you, Nicole? Doing pretty good. Great. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Brian, give us some background about ACS Solutions and what it is that you do. Well, we've been around since um, 1978, and you know that's a pretty big deal today to be around. And what we do is uh, uh, provide fiber and uh, copper assemblies, mostly to the uh, Internet and the service providers. Uh, but the wireless industry is obviously changed a lot, and we've been able to keep up with that uh, during that period of time. And we also do uh, assemblies for the transportation industry, which is getting to be uh, a lot more exciting than I had first thought that it would be with some of the uh, regulations that are actually coming out of um, uh, the uh, federal government on what uh, trains can or cannot do um, in that particular area. And then we also deal with uh, uh, utilities and uh, again, the biggest thing that we see coming down the stretch really is going to be more transportation and the wireless. Okay. Now, I know you've had a lot of involvement with lobbying in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the industry right. uh, for TIA. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> yeah, I'm fortunate to serve on a, the board of uh, TIA, which is the Telecommunications Industry Association. And they've been around for many, many years. And people say, well, who is that? Well, that's actually a uh, everybody pretty much understands the word in uh, CAT5. And CAT5, of course, is the patch cords that we use to hook up our computers in our homes and so forth. And they were the ones that created that standard. So they're a standards body from that standpoint. One of the um, uh, most interesting parts of, being, uh, of serving that board 
is having the ability to be able to uh, explain, and I represent small business on the board, uh, to be able to go into Washington and speak with um, the staff uh, at Boehner's office, for instance, we were in there, and to be able to just really let them know what the impact of some of the things that they're doing out there as to how it's going to affect our industry. Uh, and at the end of the day, to be very candid with you, in, when they talk about inside the beltway, it's inside the beltway. It is amazing how much that they do not understand uh, about some of the day-to-day lives as it affects us from the technology standpoint and what we do for a living. Okay. Now, tell me a little bit about the uh, the culture of ACS and also the contributions. Well, the, 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 the culture's uh, a, a bit different. I, I, uh, I have a good friend of mine. He's now become a friend of mine and my mentor, Bill Schwartz. Uh, who really introduced me into something called the generative organization. And the short story is that we have four tenants in our company, and that basically is accountability, empowerment, uh, transparency, and contribution. And when you start to think about those four pieces, uh, they kind of interweave with the, within each other. And if you give, an, give folks an environment where they can contribute to something greater than themselves, that actually speaks to uh, the spiritual side of, of just the human experience. Uh, most companies, um, and, and I've been guilty prior to several years ago, uh, the CEO uh, supposedly is the guy that makes all the decisions and knows everything. Well, I found that uh, CEOs are probably one of the most uh, out-of-control people that exist, <laughs> and so what do they do? When they're out of control, they put controls in place. And when that starts to happen, then you have this domino effect of uh, fear and a lot of other things. So what I've done uh, basically is try to just take a look at uh, the situations that bring themselves uh, to my attention. By the time they get to my office, it's probably some because somebody already fixed it and it needs to be fixed again. But I really want to understand what's the structure out there. Um, what structure exists in order for the uh, behavior to occur, whatever that happened to be. And that's both good behavior and bad behavior from that standpoint. So when it comes to doing any initiatives or we start bringing on uh, new products to launch, we go to the people who are doing the work. Uh, the people on the front lines, they have ideas on how to make it do better. And it's far from me being able to do anything along that line. So I really let them have a lot of input to that, and it makes a very um, a contributive type of environment for us. I certainly concur with that culture. We've been talking with Brian Gluting with ACS Solutions. So, Brian, let's talk uh, mobile communications. Okay. Okay. Uh, how do you think the future landscape for mobile communications will change, and what are its current challenges? The... Uh, Let's start with the challenges because I think that's where it's going to really tell us what the changes are going to end up being. Uh, when uh, Apple, in their uh, infinite wisdom, decided to come out with the iPhone, it really did a, um, uh, almost a disservice to the entire network, not realizing it, of course, because it started sucking up more bandwidth. And then we started seeing the iPad. Uh, when's the last time you dropped a phone call, right? Uh, so all the, everything's being driven so much by data that all of a sudden the voice communications are not becoming um, as prevalent. And in so doing that, uh, we find ourselves with dropped calls. Now, my attitude is very simple. When I have a dropped call, I say, yes, I'm going to be in business for another year. <laughs> um, and the, the biggest uh, challenge in deploying it, uh, there's two of them actually. One is called Spectrum. We do not have enough Spectrum out there to handle what we currently have, and that's why your calls get dropped. Uh, that's why you have a delay on your iPad or your iPhone when you're trying to download something. And so what they're doing is that the, the, the component folks are trying to just make, build things faster, but there isn't a good highway in order to get there. So in the first issue is that the FCC is, is supposed to be doing a, um, 
an auction and should generate a lot of money, but there's a lot of things, as we all know, that are going on in Washington, and so they're not paying as much attention to this right now. The other piece is that you've got the uh, what we call the bellhead thinking or the wireline thinking uh, inside of the service providers as AT&T, Verizon, and so forth. And they've had to now go into the, out in the wireless space, and that's an unregulated side. Well, when that happens, the rules change, and quite frankly, they're having a real struggle in uh, trying to adopt some of the rules on the wireline side to go into the wireless because if they had done that, then the quality would be better on the installations, and we'd be able to move these things out even more so. The last piece, to answer the second question, is that when you look out as to what we need to do, we want to have connection everywhere all the time, um, no matter where we're at. And even when you go to New York today, it's, there's a good deal of improvement. And I say New York because what we're talking about is what, they're, uh, what they call distributed antenna systems. And what happens is that you'll see little boxes on walls in order to be able to... to uh, to be able to access that from, but you've got to be able to get it there. And so there's a lot of uh, microwave technology and um, uh, millimeter wave technology that they're taking a look at for site and non-line of sight uh, to be able to give us everything that we want. This is going to go on for many, many more years, and I would say two or three years from now, we still are not going to be able to conceive today what it's going to look like then. Can you give our listeners some insight on how the telephone companies have been challenged in going to a, from a wire line mindset to a wireless thought process? Yes. Uh, one, of the, one of the easiest ways to explain it would be that they work on something they call five nines. And five nines quality, it means that you're not going to get any drop calls. And we're so used to that in the wireline side. And there's also the regulation side that says we have to be able to dial 911. And when you, uh, we just recently had a, a job that uh, was rather mind-boggling, uh, and it was for Madison Square Garden where we ended up having to come up with a certain dB level, which is a level that uh, you guys understand in the studio. And by the way, we make those cables right there, so the next time you need those <laughs> things, I'm more than happy to help you out there. Um, and the, the, the problem was is that when I, if I'm sitting next to Peter in, a, in, a, in Madison Square Garden, all of a sudden he has a heart attack, and I try to dial 911, I can't get the call out right now. Why? Because everybody else is too busy streaming. So there's actually a hazard from that standpoint that's occurring out there. And because the uh, service providers no longer own that turf, if you will, inside of stadiums and where we're doing the connectivity, they're being challenged to try to take their way of doing things and trying to place it inside of that piece. So they've had to co-locate with some other folks, and it's not always a friendly situation as we hear from the uh, advertisements that we hear on a regular basis. We're talking with Brian Gluting with ACS Solutions. Brian, how did the Internet change your industry? Well, you know, it was interesting. <clears throat> when I first came on board with the company in 1993, 1994, we'd received a phone call from uh, a company that um, actually has been bought out and it's been long since gone in the M&A world. And they said that they wanted something from us and they wanted it tomorrow. And I said, how would you like to have it today? Because that's our specialty. We're a quick-turn, uh, high-quality, and easy-to-do-business kind of company. And when I went over there, he showed me how he could get um, 675 phone calls on this complete rack of equipment. And I was all excited about that in 1993. Um, that same memory or that same activity for those phone calls now comes in by 2 by 12 uh, type of uh, space instead of an 8-foot by 3-foot space from that standpoint. So the challenges in, in, in getting into that, I had to make a choice what direction we wanted to go to. And when I started hearing about this thing called the Internet, I thought I'd give it a shot. And I think what is most um, uh, noteworthy for us is that uh, we went into the dot-com, we only had a couple of uh, competitors at the time, but we came out of that, and we were the last ones to survive. Great. 
Um, you're uh, obviously dealing with uh, you know a production environment uh, and, and a pricing environment. How does uh, how do the pressures from Mexico and China? Well, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in that because you want to generate revenue, and I've got hungry salespeople just like every other organization. The biggest challenge for us really is that we have to say no to the customer. So when they want something that we know is being made in Mexico, we don't want to make ourselves look foolish by, by pricing that piece. So we've had to actually literally discriminate and offer the service of saying, well, if you get it for, uh, from Mexico or China, it's going to take you weeks in order to be able to get that. We can deliver that within two or three days. And, yes, there is a premium for it, but we're not charging a premium. We're just charging you what it costs to build it inside the United States. Thank you. Brian, I love the tagline on your website. It says, ACS is the company that's easy to do business with. So how can our listeners get in contact with you to see how easy it is? It's, um, it's as simple as going to our website, which is uh, www.acssolutions.com. Great. Thank you very much, Brian Glutti with ACS Solutions. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have Tiffany Mac Fitzgerald with Black Girls Golf. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you. Tiffany, tell us about the company and what do you do? Well, I don't like to call it a company. I like to call it an organization because it it really thrives from membership. And I started it two years ago, actually, when I was in Iowa. And I just saw a need for women on the golf course and particularly minority women. I, I worked in marketing, PR, and government affairs for a large international organization in the Quad Cities. And no one knew my name. I was the black girl in marketing. And once I learned how to play golf, all of a sudden people knew my name. Mm-hmm. So I started playing golf when they needed an extra person on a foursome. They didn't ask me because they just assumed I didn't play. So I started kind of figuring out that the interns were getting more responsibilities and larger projects because they played golf with the executives and middle management and people who were in charge of doling out those projects. So I started taking lessons. Um, I got a little better. I don't think anyone can say they're great at at golf. I've seen you in the course, Tiffany. You're pretty darn good. I'm not great. But um, I learned how to swing a golf club, and all of a sudden I started getting more respect at work. So I knew there was a need for an organization that kind of took the intimidation factor out of learning how to play, Mm -hmm. specifically for women. Okay. And I love the name. How did you come up with that? In our culture, nothing changes until there's been some disruption. (laughs) Um, The environment and culture of things will stay the same until someone comes in and disrupts things. So I decided that I want people to know that I'm I'm here to shake some things up. Mm -hmm. And you can't mistake who we are when we show up on a golf course. There's black women all over the place, and you're not used to seeing that. So people pay attention. When I call a golf course and I say I'm calling from Black Girls Golf, they're more interested in talking to me because they're curious about what that is and what that means. And so I just wanted to make sure that we got the attention we deserved. And quite frankly, some people don't like it. You know, if you think about the evolution of sports, Mm -hmm. most sports have evolved. Golf is still evolving. No, it's not. Uh (laughs) Golf is still in the same place it's always been. It's still in the same place it's always been. And when you think about the latest Tiger Woods, I don't want to call it a scandal, but, (laughs) I mean, come on, fried chicken, give me a break. (laughs) We've been talking with Tiffany Mack Fitzgerald with Black Girls Golf. (laughs) Tiffany, what are the goals for your organization? My goal is really, you know, as I stated before, to create some disruption in the culture of golf. 
I mean, it's a place where women don't always feel comfortable. It's a place where minority women particularly don't feel comfortable. So the goal of the organization is just to create some power by numbers and get more women on the golf course. I mean, like running, if I say I want to go jogging, I want to learn how to run, I can go to any athletic store, grab a pair of what people tell me are great running shoes, and I can hit the neighborhood. I can go hit a track. I can go get on a treadmill. Golf is not one of those sports where you're just going to show up and say, someone teach me how to play. So just creating an environment where women can learn how to play, where there's no intimidation, and they're, they, they're comfortable, and it's, it's a fun environment to learn how to play. And how has golf helped your career? Well, as I was saying, I, I got a little more respect at work. People learned my name, and I was able to build relationships with people that I normally would have no contact with. So golf, I mean, you're spending four hours on a golf course, it's that that's a lot of one on one time and some some you know less formal time to get to really really know people and and understand something more about them. How do you think black girls golf can change help change the culture of golf? Well, I I'll, I'll tell you a story. We we showed up on a golf course uh in the middle of of Atlanta and people were really curious about who these women were and why are you here? And by the end of the day People were high-fiving us, congratulating us. And so we were able to change the culture of that golf course for that day. And so by creating events in the local area and kind of disrupting the culture of somebody's comfort. So I'll I'll be heading to a a golf course near some of our listeners soon. You know, you talk about changing the culture and shaking it up. Nicole knows I love to shake things up. (laughs) Anybody loves to shake it up. It's Dom, Dominator. Well, you have to come out and join us. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I <laughs> thought about uh, trying to join Augusta National. <laughs> but I, I know that was going to be a tough call. Can, th- can men join your, your, your group? We would love to have men out. But, but here, here's the thing. The one thing that women don't like on a golf course, I, I played in a, in a tournament once where whenever we got to the women's tee, there was a guy that got out of his cart and he followed me to the women's tee to show me what to do at every single hole. And I thought, you know, by the end of this, I don't want to have to pay you for a lesson. I think I got it. <laughs> Make them carry your bag. <laughs> so we would love to have men out, but just promise not to try to tell us what to do. Tiffany, Black Girls Golf is, is a young organization. Where do you see the organization in five years? What are your desires? I would ultimately like to be able to host a large golf tournament once a year. I'd also like to add a mentoring component. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be able to get some inner city girls who are not used to seeing professional women who can spend four hours on a nice day being surrounded by women who are smart, educated, encouraging each other in, in a fun no stress environment. I agree. And what would you say is the thing that you enjoy most about what you do? I love being outside and I love people. And even if you don't like somebody, four hours on a golf course, you got to find something <laughs> to like about them to be with them that long. So, so true. So true. So, Tiffany, uh, tell us, tell our listeners, how can people learn more about Black Girls Golf? Well, right now, I'm all over social media, so you can find Black Girls Golf on Twitter. You can find Black Girls Golf on Facebook, and the website is blackgirlsgolf.net. Great. Thank you very much, Tiffany, for being on the show. You've been listening to Silver Lining in the Cloud, brought to you by CDI Managed Services. Next up, we have Sharon Ritchie-Harton. Good morning, Sharon. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. 
Great. Sharon, tell us a little bit about legacy nursing and rehabilitation and what do you do? Well, I'm a social worker at Legacy. I've been there for over 30 years, so I've been in the trenches for a long, long time. Um, Legacy, as the name says, is a health and rehabilitation center. We consider ourselves to be setting a standard as far as the quality of care we deliver. As the population ages and we have more and more um, elderly people who are having um, need of assisted living services, we're hoping to set ourselves apart in providing those services, not only for the elderly, but we also offer uh, intensive post-acute um, delivery, and we have a rehabilitative component that we try to emphasize our homebound program, whereby people who have suffered traumatic incidents, such as strokes, motor vehicle accidents, etc., can come in, be rehabilitated, and go home, and hopefully resume their previous lifestyle. Okay. You mentioned that you've been there for 30 years. Yes. Wow, you must love what you do. <laughs> <laughs> what I do, does, I do. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. That really is a great thing. What does your facility offer that your competitors don't? Well, we consider ourselves um, a standard bearer as far as quality. Um, we have an excellent nursing staff and rehabilitative staff. Mm -hmm. And we have implemented um, certain skilled nursing services that currently none of our competitors in the immediate area is providing. Okay. So we are hoping that that will, you know, elevate us over our competitors. Right, right. Now, how do you envision the growth of the facility, both numerically and in terms of the delivery of services? Well, um, to, to harken back onto the quality, we're hoping that with the quality we deliver, it will elevate us, as I said. And um, as we grow numerically, you know, we market ourselves that we offer these kinds of services. And, you know, as the word gets out um, into the com hospital communities that we are providing these services, then certainly it would improve our growth. Okay, thank you very much. We have been talking with Sharon Ritchie Houghton from Legacy Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Sharon, is there a particular group of the population that you serve more than others? Presently, we are serving primarily the elderly, um, but we have an increased number of younger people who have had strokes, motor vehicle accidents, various kinds of traumas, brain injuries, that sort of thing. So that's a growing segment for us because it emphasizes our homebound program where these people come in, short-term stay, rehabilitate, and return home, return to the community. Mm, what would you say is the, uh, you know, the duration of stay for your residents? Well, the long-term, of course, speaks for itself. Those residents yeah. are there long-term. But the, um, our homebound program will average maybe three months sometimes less, for them to get the services they need, okay. um, the physical therapy, et cetera, to be able to function again in the community. Tell our listeners what stands out most about your facility. I think the warmth of the staff, um, the service they provide. A lot of people come into the facility and say, oh, you guys are so friendly. You know? <laughs> so we, we do pride ourselves on, on that. We, um, we are in a very historic district. We are located right downtown in the National Historic District of the Martin Luther King Center. 
So hence, legacy. Um, so we do have that cultural mix there. We do have a lot of people from the Atlanta area who we provide services to. Were there other major considerations in you know determining the location? No, well, other than historic, I'm probably not. Um, it's been there for for many years. I don't know what the motivation was to have chosen that site, but it has evolved as that. In fact, I think the the facility was there before the the area was designated uh, historic site. Yeah. So it has just kind of been a tandem situation. Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. Sharon, I want to go back to uh, talking about what do you enjoy most about what you do. I mean, after 30 years, you're obviously very passionate about your job. What I do. do. Um, I love what I do. Um, it's, it's good to see. With the, the long-term care side, it's, it's always a difficulty with people adjusting, uh-huh. um, both for the families and for the residents. So whatever role as social service person that I can play in that to help that transition to be a little smoother because it's always very difficult. Of course. It's traumatizing for the families. It's traumatizing for the person that's coming in. Right. And um, so we help to make that transition as smooth as possible. Right. Um, f- it's longer for some people than for others. For the people who are in the short-term care um, side of things, usually they're dealing with a sudden loss of independence. Mm-hmm. You know, usually their situation is very sudden because it's been an accident or a stroke or a heart attack or something. So they are coping with suddenly, you know, a week ago they were able to do X and now they can't, you know, and those people are oftentimes younger. And so it's just to help them cope, you know, to provide the psychosocial services they need to cope with whatever changes that is happening in their situation. Okay, and who would you say is the ideal person or the ideal candidate that can benefit from the center? Anyone who needs skilled nursing services and rehabilitative services, we're here to provide for them. Right. And tell our listeners, uh, Sharon, how can they uh, learn more about what the center provides? Where can they reach you? Okay. Um, the, they're the ad, we're a part of the Ad Care organization, so they can go on the website. Okay. And certainly the C- yes, certainly the CMS website, www.cms, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And um, we were, in fact, recently awarded the bronze medal for outstanding quality oh, of services which is a congrats. national award okay congrats congratulations and kudos. thank you thank you very much sharon you've been listening to silver lining in the cloud where we talk business to business a special thank you today to all of our guests peter casey with clouder resources brian gluting with acs solutions tiffany mac fitzgerald with black girls golf and Sharon Ritchie Houghton from Legacy Nursing and Rehabilitation Center. Thank you all again for being on our show. I'm your host, Nicole Toptosh, along with my co-host, Dominic Rainey, with CDI Managed Services, where we work with companies to maximize their investment in IT infrastructure and cloud solutions and support. To listen to this show and other Silver Lining in the Cloud broadcasts, go to silverlining.businessradiox.com. And until next time, remember, when it comes to IT solutions and cloud hosting, CDI Managed Services is your silver lining in the cloud.